Yeah, sure. Um, so good evening, everybody. Glad to be here. Uh, my name is Nate Loper, and uh, like Aaron said, we get a chance to work with Adam at Canyon Ministries. And so Adam and Jen, great friends of ours. So um, Canyon Ministries, you know, we do river trips and rim tours and backpacking trips and hiking tours all around the Grand Canyon area. And so a lot of what it is, it's really not just any other tour company. We operate kind of as a, a different view, you might say, a different perspective because we're a Christian tour company who believe God's word to be true cover to cover. So things like the days of creation, you know, we believe that God did in fact create all things within those six days. And we really believe there was a global flood in Noah's day. And that's what we teach and proclaim with boldness every day at the Grand Canyon. So a lot of that is what we call, you know, apologetics, which is kind of an understanding of how to share, to teach and understand your faith. And so one of my passions for the last nearly 20 years has been apologetics, not just in creation and science and things like that, but also things like with archaeology. And so, yeah, the last few years I've been able to teach um, some biblical archaeology. Last couple of years been enrolled in some courses through Oxford University, some distance education to continue that. So one of my main passions is kind of Egyptology, um, how to understand really the timeline of, of Israel and the Hebrew people especially when they were in Egypt. And so a lot of that has to do with Joseph and Moses primarily because those are the really key big stories and events. And so that has been a passion of mine to kind of study and try to understand a lot of that from a biblical perspective, you know, so that we can take, you know, archaeology and we can take the latest, greatest of science and we can combine that and say, here's where God's word is, is proven true by what we see all around us. And so it's fantastic when Pastor Aaron said you guys are kind of finishing up in Genesis and getting ready to go to Exodus, because I'm like, that's perfect right in between a couple spots there. Um, so my favorite between those two, personally, I really love the story of Joseph. I love that timeline. I love the history of what's going on in Egypt and with the people of Israel, that God is using an amazing event to hone and to shape and to build up and to strengthen his people. And then when they leave Egypt in, in Exodus, they don't leave as just, you know, poor beaten slaves and servants. The Bible tells us they leave pretty much victorious and marching out. They are arrayed for battle, the Bible tells us. And they had all kinds of stuff that they were given by the Egyptians, uh, gold and silver and treasures to basically take. And so it's amazing to see how God in his perfect timing brings things together. So I'm excited to share with you guys tonight. Um, I, I told them, I said, yeah, I can be here as many weeks as we want. Um, I said, I, we can share as little as 30 minutes or two hours if you want. Um, if you know me, we, I like talking with people. I love having conversations. So I'm not just going to talk to you guys tonight. We're going to have some time, hopefully, at the end for some questions and things like that, too. But I do want to talk a little bit with you guys tonight, hopefully get an understanding of um, kind of some of the timeline of where you guys are at in studying God's Word. And so if we can pull that up. There we go. We're going to talk a little bit this evening about the Hebrew Israelites in Egypt. I know it's a hot topic, it's an exciting, there's been a number of documentaries that have come out recently. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with the video series Patterns of Evidence? So they have a few on like the timeline of Moses and the Exodus and all kinds of different things. So we're going to kind of start a little bit before most of those films kind of dive into. We're going to talk about kind of the uh, timeline of the arrival of the Hebrew people into Egypt and what we see happening during that time and do we find the Israelites, do we find the Hebrew people somewhere, somehow in Egypt? Now, I'm in the middle right now of a three-year study project on this exact topic right here, just about the arrival of the Hebrew people into Egypt. And let me tell you guys, it is exciting stuff. There is no 
completely settled, you know, final science or archaeology when it comes to Egypt or when it comes to Israel or it comes to anything. It is still research. There are still new discoveries being taken place. So many people have the idea, well, all the archaeological stuff has already been discovered. If you watch anything in the news about all the discoveries in Egypt, how many new, you know, tombs that are opening up, how many new mummies they're discovering, you will realize, like many of us in this field, that we only know of about probably 5 to 10 percent of all Egypt has been excavated. That means 90 to 95 percent of what's out there still lies beneath the desert sands. And we can see some of that actually with satellite imagery. So modern day technology, things like satellite imagery are giving us an actual great understanding. We can see visually where there's outlines and traces of, of entire you know, cities and places that we never even knew where to pinpoint them at. Pretty exciting, I think. So today's day, it's a golden age of archaeology. I was just attending a course, uh, a class I should say, about two months ago um, from New York State University and they are putting on like a three-day conference and one of the keynote speakers at the end said it is with the digital age we are in a new golden age of archaeology. And I thought how cool is that, you know, because all these great archaeologists and all these great discoveries we've all heard about, that's fantastic, but guys we have so much more coming out. And that also plays true with the Bible and what God's Word shows us. And so it's exciting that we can take some of the latest and greatest from science and archaeology, we can combine it with God's Word, and we can say, yes, this Bible is true. Every word of it written is true. We can stand firm upon God's Word with faith and hope and everything, and we can see it come alive in the world around us. I don't know about you, but I get excited about this kind of stuff. So we're going to dive in a little bit. In fact, I'm going to kind of, kind of transition right into the very end of Genesis. And um, I want to read just something briefly to you guys about the death of Joseph, actually, that it records in the, in the, in the Bible here. So Genesis chapter 50 is where I'm going to just kind of start here for a moment. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. And so this is after Joseph is in Egypt. This is after Jacob, his father, moves into Egypt with all of his brothers after they get settled, after all this stuff, at the end of Joseph's life, um, he's getting ready to pass away here, and 110 years old, long, full life. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this, take you up out of this land to the land he promised on, on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and they embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Do you guys know that Joseph was mummified? He became a mummy. They embalmed him in the way that they would do in Egypt, placed him in a coffin, which wasn't typically how they would do it normally later on in the Israelite days, but this is what they did because Joseph as we read about just before this, was a man of importance, a man of power. So it's incredible when we start to see the country of, of the nation, you might say, of Israel combining with the nation of Egypt. Now, many times, we kind of have a picture in our mind of what Egypt is all about. And we oftentimes just simply think of it as a bad place, right? A place of slavery. But I want to share with you guys tonight a little bit about what Egypt is all about and what God's Word shows to us. So, of course, Egypt, as you look here on the map, you can see up in the top right corner there, there is the modern-day, I should say, boundary of Egypt. Uh, ancient Egypt was much longer than this, going from here all the way up in the Nile Delta, to where Memphis is at right down here, and then right about there is Thebes, which is modern-day Luxor. 
And it went all the way down here a little ways past Aswan, and you could all the way go down a little bit further the boundaries. But pretty much what you see today on a modern map is close to what the boundaries of Egypt will be. Except back in those days, they didn't really spread out that far to the left or to the right. Most of Egypt Classic was right there, right along the Nile River. Now, why in the world was it based right along the Nile River? Anybody? Because <laughs> water, there you go. We know here in Flagstaff, in the Southwest, water is life, right? It's exactly true when you live in a dry desert environment like this. This here shows you most of what we call Lower Egypt. It's a little bit confusing when you study Egyptology because Lower Egypt is on the north, Southern Egypt, or the, oh, sorry, Upper Egypt is in the south. So it's kind of opposite of what we typically think about. And the reason for that is the Nile River, which direction does it flow? It flows from south to north, right? Which is kind of opposite of most of our rivers and most of our maps. In ancient Egypt, oftentimes, they would actually see things upside down the other way. So for them, up or the top or the beginning of the land was way down here, and everything went that direction. In fact, when they went on campaigns into Mesopotamia and they saw things like the Tigris and Euphrates, the Egyptians marveled at how strange these rivers were because they flowed in the opposite direction that they should flow. And to us, most of our rivers go north to south typically, right? We kind of think about that. Well, there it was kind of the opposite. So upper Egypt is in the south, lower Egypt starts right about here, right past the Fayum oasis, and right up through to there. Now, looking at this map, you see a lot of green right along that little line. And that, of course, is the Nile River. And the amazing thing about the Nile River is it would flood every year, typically right around the beginning of July. We are kind of used to that pattern here, right? We have right around the beginning of July what we call monsoon season, right? Now, in ancient Egypt, they had the exact same thing. It was very reliable, just like we have here in Flagstaff. And every year, right around the beginning of July, right around July 7th, would be kind of their new year. And they would start with this kind of annual celebration of monsoon. They called it Aket, when the annual flooding of the Nile would take place. And what happened was there would be big summer clouds built way up down here to the south. And those summer clouds would dump a huge amount of rain. And then the river would swell, sometimes even a mile wide. And it would fertilize the land, bringing in new silt, new sediment, and of course, water. And once it did that, then they can run out there and plant everything. And it actually became a very reliable source of food, especially in a dry desert environment. Now, we should note, though, that something like this we see here in Egypt, it wasn't always quite as dry like we see today. The Sahara Desert has grown. It's gotten a lot drier. We know from descriptions as well as depictions that uh, Egypt actually was a little bit more lush and more fertile. Nowadays, it definitely has gotten a little bit more dry. But I want you guys to kind of get a picture of what this map looks like. I also want to draw your attention to a really interesting piece of land you see right here. See that little V-shaped delta? Anybody know what that is? It's a delta, yes. That is the biblical land of Goshen. So in the Bible, when it talks about Pharaoh giving the best of the land to Joseph and his descendants, you know, when Jacob and family arrive, they send them to this land of Goshen, which they've kind of settled in this region of that area. But this is kind of this nice, fanning, fertile, green land, beautiful place to live, beautiful place to spend their time. So this is where Joseph and family basically settle. Jacob moves up there. Joseph probably still kind of stayed around some of the capital a little bit. But um, we see that during this time, of course, they come into Egypt. They arrive in Egypt. 
Is it really plentiful or is it really difficult when, jo when Jacob and his family arrive? It's very difficult, right? Why did they end up going there? Why did Joseph's brothers come to Egypt? It was a seven-year famine. Now, the whole land, not just Egypt, but the entire region was under famine. But God had provided a way, right? Through Joseph, God spoke to the Pharaoh in the dream. Joseph interpreted that dream. We know that Joseph was elevated to a position of power, second only to the Pharaoh himself. And he basically interpreted that dream and basically said, so what should we do? And Joseph said, well, let's see. Let's take you know, the surplus of these years. Let's store it up so that when we're in the famine, we'll have a lot of grain. Not only did that save and preserve the people of Egypt, but that set them up for becoming the most powerful, influential nation in the entire region. Now people are going to be coming to them to buy grain, right? So they came to buy grain, and they came and they sold um, all their possessions and things like that. And even in Egypt, the Bible says that those who had money and those who had land and things like that, they sold all their money, they gave all the money for the grain, then they gave their land for the grain, and then they gave themselves as servants, basically, their slaves to the Pharaoh for the grain. And so in that, the Pharaoh himself, the leadership and the power basically consolidated all this power, instead of having all these little governors and places set up and the Pharaoh trying to control all the people through, you know, somehow come some other external pressure. Um, now the Pharaoh had the land, he had the money, and basically he had their lives at that point. Now then he goes back and says, all right, I'm going to kind of give you guys forgiveness of this so you're not going to have to owe me your entire lives. I will give you back some land. Now what kind of gratefulness do you think that those people had now? Now they, they gave everything to Pharaoh. He gives them back. He says, here you go. Just take it freely, but give me back, you know, a fifth of everything you have. So the Pharaoh gets set up continually through that, that point. But Joseph is put in a position of power and authority and almost as a, as a way to save not only the nation of Egypt, but as we're about to see, to save even the nation of Israel, the people that God has established and ordained to be his chosen people on this earth. So he sets them up, and so if we look at the Bible, oftentimes we do think, of Egypt as being almost a curse, right? A slavery. And many times, that reference that, right? I mean, we talk about Egypt and being in slavery. But many times, God also uses Egypt in an amazing way. God has a way of controlling nations, doesn't he? God has a way of controlling kings and kingdoms, doesn't he? He has a way of controlling presidents, doesn't he? Let's hope so. Yes, we know these things to be true, and we can see time and time again that God has a way of using even what the enemy might want to sow into our lives to cause destruction and chaos, of taking that around and using it for our good and for his glory. And sometimes what I like to say, he wants to steal the devil's stick and beat him with it, right? God has a way of doing that. We see that even with Egypt. So Egypt oftentimes is a blessing, and sometimes it's also a curse. Now, oftentimes we just typically think of the curses, but what about the blessings? What about the times that God has used Egypt to bring about a blessing to his people? We can go all the way back to the time of Abraham. Abraham arrived into Egypt during a time of famine as well. And when he was down there, right, he had an encounter with the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh took an eye to his wife, took her, you know, to be his wife or into his harem, and all of a sudden he realized, wait a minute, this is not my sister, this is not his sister, this is his wife, actually. And the Pharaoh was like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And so they apologize, and they give him all kinds of stuff. They set Abraham up with a huge amount of wealth to send him along his way. And at the end, Abraham's saying, hey, that wasn't too bad, right? God has a way of not only saving him because of the famine during that time, but setting him up for greater good. Joseph comes in. He becomes a slave, right? He's put into slavery in Egypt. Now, that's a pretty tough place to be. 
But then it gets even worse, right? Because after he's a slave, what happens? He gets thrown into prison. Now he's sitting at the lowliest position of whole place in all the kingdom, sitting in prison. He's been a slave for all these years. Now he's in prison. What else is there left? Basically, almost the throne of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, right? He goes from being a slave in prison to becoming second to the Pharaoh himself. And God uses that position to elevate him to greatness and power, but not just for himself, for everything else that is to come. Because during the seven-year famine, this very difficult time, even Jacob and Joseph's family are all being affected by this. God sent Joseph there ahead of time to establish and to set up everything so that they wouldn't die in that famine. They come down to Egypt. They get brought into Egypt. Jacob is not only simply brought into Egypt to live there in safety, but the Pharaoh says, hey, you're Joseph's father. Let me give you the very best of the land. So he sets up Jacob and their family to have the very best of the land there. So they go and they live in that place. And so it's an amazing story that you see that Egypt, yes, is a time of difficulty. It can be a curse, but it can also be a way that God uses a blessing. We also see that later on with Hezekiah. So King Sennacherib um, is, and Hezekiah basically are kind of fighting back and forth. And so the Assyrian army is sweeping up through there. The Bible records right before it talks about the angel coming to destroy all the Assyrians. It talks about the fact that there was a pharaoh, king, uh, Taharka, which is, in, so in your Bible it might say Tirharka, and in the Egyptian it's Taharka. And this, basically this pharaoh fights against the Assyrians. And so God uses Egypt as an ally to Israel at this point, and uh, to Judah. And then of course, the greatest of all these things, what happens when they want to kill Jesus. They want to kill all the, you know, the newborn babies and they're coming after them. Where does Joseph and Mary flee to? Where do they go? They go to Egypt. Many times Egypt is a place of refuge. It's a place where God almost has a way of like bringing them in, taking through a time, and then launching people and his, his people into greatness. Egypt becomes a place of safety and refuge. So time after time we see that. Now many times, you know, we do know that Egypt causes a problem, but Egypt can also be a time of blessing. In fact, if you read in Isaiah, it says this, kind of interesting. Isaiah 19, In that day shall Israel be a third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. So Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, all three are going to be a blessing in the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So God even looks at Egypt, it seems like, throughout time as being almost part of what he wants to do to establish his rule and order, and he calls him his people. Kind of interesting that God uses Egypt. And I love that story in the account because we see time and time again that the Bible gives us amazing ways that people can be saved and rescued and brought out of darkness into his glorious light. Amen? If we look at this right here, we see that God even calls Egypt his people at times. And God uses Egypt many times. And so we look at the Bible, we see that the nation of Israel, the, the Hebrew people, they go into Egypt, right? And that's kind of right where you guys are at, studying God's word. Right at that transition of they're now into Egypt, and then we're getting into Exodus soon, about the Exodus and during that time. Now, for a lot of it, they weren't slaves the entire duration in Egypt, were they? There was a part, a timeline when they were slaves, but there was a lot of it that was actually a blessing in the beginning. So in understanding archaeology, and things like that, many people are looking and saying, well, where is the evidence that the Hebrew people were in Egypt? Where's the evidence of the Israelites being in Egypt? And tonight I want to talk to you guys a little bit about that, a little bit about some recent discoveries in archaeology 
that are coming to light that are exciting. So some of this stuff might even be brand new to you guys. Kind of cool stuff. I love it. You can tell I'm excited. So the nation of Israel, as you kind of see here, the birthplace of that really is not way over here, but way over here, right? The Bible tells us, going all the way back to Abraham, that Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees, which is kind of this area here. And so it records him coming up from here, and then comes up and settles up in this area for a while, and then up in Haran, there we go, and then migrates on down in here. And this is kind of where the promised land is given to be, coming down through into Israel in this region here. And so they're kind of hanging out in this area, then eventually, you know, Joseph gets sold as a slave to the Midianite traders to bring him down into Egypt, probably right around here, around Memphis, or right around here at a little place called Ishtaweh, which is not on the map there. So this is kind of, we see the, the migration of people up along here and then down in here. And then, of course, after, uh, after the time of slavery and the time in Egypt, then they cross to the Sinai and then eventually work way back up there. But anyhow, once you see the landscape that God carries these people through as they're traveling. So the question oftentimes comes up, where is the nation of Israel? Where are the Hebrew people? Now, we need to understand that sometimes when we're dealing with languages and names, there have been lots of different names, lots of different language changes, even in things like Hebrew and even in Egyptian. There's been changes in the way things are said and the languages that are said. But we begin to understand a little bit about the different people groups that the Egyptians themselves re talk about and that they record, and we can begin to see where the Hebrew people are founded. Now, we have thousands of years of Egyptian history. We're not going to talk through thousands of years of Egyptian history tonight. We're going to be able to talk about a little bit here, but I want to show you guys where we see some references, I believe, to the same people group that we oftentimes refer to as the nation of Israel, which is the Hebrew people. Now, a few different words. We're going to learn a bit of Egyptian tonight. You guys ready? All right, a few fun words. So, looking at this, we have a collection of different people groups that the Egyptians refer to. And so some of these names, some of these references um, are for specific groups. Some of them are kind of just broad-based groups. But throughout Egyptian study and history and language, we can see references to some of the same people that I believe would be referred to as our modern-day Hebrew uh, Israelites, we would say. One of the words that we see in ancient Egyptian is this word Amu. So if you look over here on the left, Amu, which is basically the Egyptian word for an Asiatic, okay? Now, when I say Asiatic, I don't want you to think like, you know, Japan and China. Asiatic simply means people to the east, okay? Kind of towards the Asian area, so like, you know, Asia Minor, Asia Major, and all those different regions. Asiatics and the Egyptians were basically people that lived to the east. And the Asiatics would refer to basically anybody that kind of lived in that Babylonian area, uh, through Mesopotamia, that's kind of they refer to those kind of regions of people as Asiatics. So early times, oftentimes, you would see this word Amu. And so that is a reference to Asiatics. Now that could incur, or in, that would include the Hebrew people. That would also include other people like Canaanites. That would also include people that kind of lived in that region. Just like, you know, the world we have today, all of Europe is not one single country, right? You could say European, and so we kind of know the broad general base of where they might live, but in Europe we have lots of different countries, and within those countries we have different people groups, right? But Amu is oftentimes Asiatic, so Hebrew people would be falling under that category of Amu. So you can kind of see that there. Now there's another interesting word that's oftentimes referenced, and I think also references some early Hebrew people, and that is the word shasu. And so shasu is the Egyptian word that means nomads. People, basically, the, the literal translation means people that don't dwell in a city, basically. 
So running around, living in tents. Now think about that for a minute. What does that sound like? The Bible tells us that Abraham basically left the cities. He was a nomad. He wandered around without a home. Basically, he sojourned in Canaan, basically without a home. And the Bible references that many times. He was a Shasu nomad. And in fact, he was a pretty powerful Shasu nomad because you read in there, Abraham actually had armies. He had men at his disposal. He helped going into battles and things like that. He had a lot of stuff. It wasn't just like some poor, lowly, you know, tent dweller. We're talking about almost a nation of people, you might say, within a whole area. And that Shasu wouldn't simply refer to simply just Abraham's family, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But if you look at it, the Bible tells us that Abraham had many other sons, right? So not just, Ab not just Ishmael and not just um, Isaac, but there were other sons. After Sarah died, he, re he married another woman and had about five more sons, I believe it was. They went on to become great people like the Midianites. So Midian, the Midianites, okay, we have the Edomites that come from Esau. We have the Amalekites, all these, many of these great nations that we see in the Bible and some of those that cause problems later on for the Hebrew people are actually all part of the same family group originally. They were all Shasu. So the Hebrew people fall within this Shasu and they fall within this Amu. They're Asiatic from the region and the area and they're nomads. And then there's another word that we see that comes to play oh, later on. And typically we see this word after the Exodus and it's found um, in a set of letters most oftentimes letters that were written between people that were kind of kings and, and leaders in the Holy Land area there, in the, the Promised Land, I should say, they would be written back to the Pharaoh. And so we kind of see this right around uh, the time of the entry into Canaan. So the conquest of Canaan that took place, there are letters that are being sent back and forth between the local rulers there and the Pharaoh, and they refer to these people that are now invading the land, and they're taking all the cities, and they're destroying all the Pharaoh stuff, and they're destroying the land, and they're capturing everyone, and they refer to them as the Habiru, or the Apiru sometimes. But Habiru sounds a lot like Hebrew. And in fact, phonetically, it's the same transliteration. Habiru is Hebrew. So they actually refer to these invaders, basically, these nomadic invaders that are coming into the, this land, of, you know, the promised land that we see on our borders nowadays. They're coming into there, and they're laying waste to city after city after city, and they're taking the entire country, and they're writing these letters, and this is going to... Um, a place called Amarna in Egypt, writing these Amarna letters saying, hey, if you don't send some help, we're going to lose this city and this city. Now, what does that sound like to you guys? It sounds like exactly what the Bible records. When the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were invading and going into the promised land, they were laying waste to places like Ai and Jericho and taking down all of these cities, right? Boom, boom, boom. And you imagine if you were living in that land and a bunch of like nomadic invaders came in, what would you be thinking? How in the world are these guys taking all of these cities? We need help. So the refers to in these letters the Habiru. Now, that interesting word, Hebrew, okay? So when we look at this, we kind of start to narrow everything down. Amu, the Asiatics, Shasu, those nomads, a special group of both of those being the Habiru. But the interesting thing is that not all Hebrew people were part of this group. Not all the Hebrew people went to Egypt. Because Abraham had many other sons. They all would have been speaking the same language, Hebrew. They would have been a collective of kind of Hebrew people. Only a select group of those Hebrew people came into Egypt, those who were the family of Jacob. There were other Hebrew-speaking people that were out there. 
Hebrew-speaking people that would have been family members and descendants of Abraham that became the Edomites, that became the Amalekites, that became uh, the Midianites. You know, why did Moses flee Egypt and turn up in Midian? He flew to Midian because these guys are kind of like cousins to them almost. They probably spoke the same language and they probably had a lot of the same things going on. So they you know, ran out to there and he was living in the land of Midian at that point with them. So we continue to look at this and we see that within the Hebrew Habiru people, within the Hebrew people, we see the kind of Hebrew Israelites. Now that's the select family of Jacob and the family that was there to basically arrive into that area. So we begin to look in the even ancient Egyptian and we can see Amu, Shasu, Habiru, and part of that group are what we see as today the Hebrew Israelites. It's also interesting to look at ancient Egyptians, so look at ancient depictions of the different people groups around there. We start to see some really interesting similarities. So here's a depiction of kind of four different types of humanity, um, the kind of different physical characteristics and different dress styles that the Egyptians had recorded on one of their walls. Um, this is down near Luxor. So here's kind of your typical Egyptian that they depicted on the wall. Okay. Over here to the far right, um, this is a Libyan. So people from modern-day Libya, they always have these nice little feather headdresses going on. So this depicts somebody from Libya. This depicts somebody from Nubia, so down near Sudan today. Now right over here, this depicts what they refer to as the Shasu, or the Bedouin. Now again, the Shasu people, the Hebrew people, were part of the Shasu group. Down here again, we see some Shasu captives. Okay, And over here, we see more Shasu. This is also a temple in uh, Medinet Tabu, which is just on the west bank of uh, the Nile River down by Luxor today. Now, interesting thing, when you look at these Shasu Bedouin, you know, the same type of people referring to, with the Hebrew people, one thing I want to point out, look at that right there. What are those? Castles. What are those? Castles. What are those? Castles. Now, does that remind us of anything in the Bible? The Bible tells us that God was telling his people, you know, kind of different ways to dress and different things to do. He talks about them wearing castles, doesn't he? He can, in fact, he instructs the men to wear tassels, which is why many times, you know, modern day, a lot of modern day Jewish people do wear the tassels still because it was commanded to them by God. We see that depicted even in ancient Egyptian depictions of these people. Very unique, the tassels that these people wear compared to everyone else. So we can see that. Now, if we continue to look at some of the other depictions in there, we're going to talk about another kind of term or people group that we see there. And so this is an interesting thing here. This is from a... It's a, a uh, depiction on a wall in a place called Bini Hassan, which is a little bit between Cairo and Luxor, closer to the Cairo area. But there is a, um, a basically a wall that has different depictions. This is kind of a modern kind of recreation of that. It doesn't nearly look this good anymore, unfortunately. But this shows a pr procession of people. In fact, there's another group still coming with them. A procession of people going into Egypt, okay? And uh, it records who these people are, talks about them being basically these, these nomadic Bedouin. And they're coming into Egypt, and the leader of this group, you can see right here. And interesting thing, also look at their nice little colorful coat of many colors, you might say, right? Maybe that was a thing that these kind of people like to do and wear. Anyhow, the leader of this group is what you see right here, okay? And the Egyptian hieroglyphs, you guys, I told you you're going to learn a little bit of Egyptian tonight. All right. So the Egyptian hieroglyphs that we see here, um, this right here says Hekka, and so this is Hek, and this is a Q or K sound, and the Hekka, Shas. So what we see here, this basically, this symbol looks very much like what we're familiar with, like what the Pharaoh would oftentimes hold, right? 
he would hold, you know, a little flail here as a whip, and he would hold a kind of a shepherd's staff. And those two symbols together was kind of represented the Pharaoh because he was both a shepherd of the people, and he was also one that could basically drive them to do work and to do things. And so he was a protector. He was also a shepherd. But if you look here, this shepherd's staff, this kind of crook here, this basically means a ruler. This is a symbol of a ruler. And so he was a ruler and overseer. So this word right here, heka, kas, that we see here, this basically means this is a ruler, is what it means, and a ruler, and this is basically a representation of three different hills that means foreign lands, or a foreign place. So this symbol right here means, it says, heka kas, ruler of the foreign lands, or ruler of the lands of the foreigners, and then down here we see his name. Uh, starting here, we're going to read this direction and go that way. This is an I, so ib, and this is a b, and then this says sha, and it's kind of an I, so ibshai, okay? Now, tells us the name of this foreign ruler. He is a Hekakas, and his name is Ibshai. And he leads a group of people, these nomadic Bedouin, who are bringing things like eye makeup and stuff like that to, uh, to one of the local rulers there. But he leads them, and we have this interesting kind of symbol set here. I want you to pay attention to that, because we're going to see it a lot more coming up pretty soon. That word, basically, Hekakas, is the root word that we end up seeing a lot later on for this word called Hyksos. Anybody ever heard of that? It's kind of an obscure term. Some of you, all right, come yeah, fantastic. Let's talk about the Hyksos. I love it. Anyhow, Hyksos, basically, Heka Kas. So the Heka Kasut is how you would say it in Egyptian. In Greek, the word is used as Hyksos. And so we find this word Hyksos. You may have heard about it because this word Hyksos uh, comes into history oftentimes. Uh, many times referred to as a group of you know, warriors and invaders that swept into the land and destroyed Israel or destroyed Egypt for a time and took over the land. So there's a lot of myth and lore and legend about the supposed Hyksos people that modern-day archaeology and even historians don't really show to be true as much. Now I'm going to show you guys tonight why I believe that this people group, the Hyksos people, are actually a reference to the nation of Israel while they were there under Joseph's time. You look at where the Hyksos lived, first of all. They were living right here in the capital city of Avaris, which is right here near modern-day Cantir in this whole area. So they lived in this region in the biblical land of Goshen. So they're there at the right place. Now, we oftentimes hear about the Hyksos from really only one source in antiquity. That one source comes to us um, through Josephus, and it's a recording by an Egyptian historian named Manetho. Now, Manetho recorded these Hyksos people. He talks about the Hyksos. We hear about this because Josephus tells us about it, kind of in the antiquities of the Jewish people. He records and talks about these ancient Hyksos people. And he's basically saying, here's what Manetho said about these Hyksos. And Manetho goes on to say that there was a warring people that came and swept through the land like a plague, and they destroyed many of the Egyptians that were there. And they set up and they became a powerful people. And eventually there was a battle between the Egyptians and the Hyksos, and eventually they were driven out. Now this whole story that we have has basically been passed on from Manetho and Josephus' time all the way up until fairly recent times, and everyone just said, well, since it's the only source out there, we've got to believe it, right? Well, now modern-day archaeology is revealing amazing things about these Hyksos people and about the timeline of who they were. One of those things is we really look at this, and all evidence shows us archaeologically that these Hyksos people were not an invading, warring people. There's no evidence of chariots that they were using, no evidence of all this battlement that they had. I mean, basically, they seem to have migrated in. Now, the consensus nowadays is that they kind of were a kind of Asiatic people group. What does that sound like? 
same people we're just talking about, that migrated in, and they happened to migrate into the exact place where the Israelites were supposedly living, okay, in the land of Goshen, and they happened to migrate in at the exact same time that they were living there. Now, wait a minute. We have two different people groups from the same area living there at the same time? Could it be that there's one and the same people? We begin to look at the Egyptian stories, and Manetho, of course, he's an Egyptian historian, so when it comes to telling stories about history, how are you going to write a story? Our people were here, and some other people came in, and they became rich and powerful and ended up taking over part of our land. Or are you going to write the story that we were defeated by an overwhelming force? We had no ability to fight them off, you know? You're going to try to really embellish your story. And not only that, but Manetho is writing about these events 1,400 years after they took place. So Manetho might have a little bit of a different understanding, and over time, history could be a little bit different, too. He's recording and talking about things according to what Josephus is writing, He's talking about things 1,400 years after they happened. Now, history over time can definitely change and be embellished and details forgotten about, especially back in the early days when records weren't always kept as well as they are today, right? So Manetho writes about this people group, and the Hyksos people group was basically, that's all we know about them up until the late 1800s. The late 1800s, there's a lot of archaeological work being done up in that area. Um, where the people were living, predominantly by a guy named Flinders Petrie. Now, you might be familiar with that name. Flinders Petrie is kind of the father of modern-day archaeology. He was also a very strong Bible-believing Christian, and one of his goals was to go and study and, and examine things from a biblical perspective. He did a lot of work. In fact, he had the Petrie Museum in London, which I've had the opportunity of going out and studying at. The Petrie Museum holds the largest collection of ancient uh, Nubian and Egyptian artifacts anywhere outside of Egypt itself. Pretty amazing work that he did. And what he's finding there is the villages that were settled peacefully. No evidence of great massive warfare, but a slow, steady migration of people into the area. And in fact, the area where they lived at, kind of their capital city called Avaris, is a modern-day kind of archaeological site called Tel Odaba. Now, Tel Odaba, we find amazing evidence, I believe personally, of the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, moving into that area. In fact, if you've seen any of the Patterns of Evidence movies, you might be familiar with a few of these pictures here because they talk about some of the archaeological finds that are there. Now, an a archaeologist and an Egyptologist named Manfred Betok has been doing study and research up there since at least the 1970s, and they've been uncovering all sorts of evidence of this massive, amazing people that come from the right area that all the Hebrew people were at the right time with the right custom cultures, and they find in Tel Odaba an amazing palace, and this is kind of an kind of a reconstructed view of what the palace looked like, but they can find the foundation footings, they can find the walls, and another really interesting thing that they found were a set of 12 different pillars. And you can see here, 12 different pillars. Now, we're not gonna conclusively jump to any conclusions and say 100% this is what it is, but it sounds very interesting to me. You have 12 massive pillars in a, you know, a big portico like that. What does that remind us of? 12 sons. Jacob, right? Yeah, could possibly be. We continue to look at Tel Odaba and this whole lake, this whole area, and we find evidence of many other buildings, huge, massive complex, and uh, in fact, what appears to have been a big kind of burial chamber area. And inside of there, they've discovered what uh, this is kind of a reconstruction of it, but a statue of a nobleman or a very important person. Now, the interesting thing when they found this statue, he has what we call a mushroom head. That's what we call it in Egyptology. 
You look at it, and it's got this very interesting kind of rounded mushroom-looking head to it, which is not typically found in Egyptian studies and Egyptian, you know, people. It's actually found typically only with these Asiatic sort of people. So we have something that looks like this, and it has some red paint to it, kind of a red tint to it. So somebody maybe with reddish hair. Interestingly enough, what does the Bible tell us about, you know, Abraham's line? Well, Esau had very red hair, didn't he? You know, he's a hairy man. Talk about the word Esau. Um, basically means red, and Edom, his descendants, Edomites, basically meaning red. So we see that perhaps some of these Israelites actually have some red hair. Who knows? We also see a depiction that he held a uh, throwing stick. It's kind of hard to see this picture here, but there is an Asiatic throwing stick that he holds over, so that's a symbol of power and authority, but not one that Egyptians typically use, one that only these Asiatics typically use. But buried in a very nice little chamber, like a little pyramid here. Now, the Patterns of Evidence talks about the fact that this could be the burial chamber of Joseph. The right time, the right place, the right elevation of power and authority perhaps could be there. Now, I'm not going to dive into that movie. You guys can jump into that and watch that if you'd like. But this location of Avaris is actually at a very interesting place because Avaris is one of the lower cities. And in fact, over years, this same city has changed names multiple times. Um, it was called Peru Nefer in Egyptian at one point, which basically means the beautiful port city. It was also called Kantir, we typically see nowadays. It was also called Avaris. It was also called Ramses. And in fact, when you look at this area, the original foundation underneath here, this is where Avaris would be, and then it was later destroyed and then covered, and then a new city built on top, the city of Ramses. The Bible tells us, we're going to get to it here in, in Exodus, that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, built the storehouses of Pithom and Ramses for the Pharaoh at a later date. We look at this, the exact location where they were living at, where the Pharaoh now forces them to build storehouses, is the exact location that we see later on referred to as Ramses. Right time, right people group, right place. So we begin to look at this and understand, we say, wait a minute, there's all kinds of similarities to these so-called Hyksos people, which is, you know, again, that Greek word, and the Hebrew people. Now, another interesting thing that we find from this time, right time, right people group, are scarabs. Now, anybody know what a scarab is? Not just a little beetle, but a scarab in Egyptian, we talk about, that is a kind of a medallion or a symbol. Oftentimes, sometimes they'd be bigger. You could use them like, you know, almost like a necklace medallion. But most oftentimes, scarabs are really tiny, pretty small, almost about the size of your thumb. And they're used as imprints or seals many times to kind of stamp a letter, basically, or to have some kind of show of authority, or sometimes many people would have, you know, replicas and models made of them, basically for good luck and fortune, you would wear it around your neck. But anyhow, many times, somebody's symbol of authority, their royal signet, right? So when the Pharaoh says that he's going to give Joseph his own seal, and he places on his finger his own ring, right? That ring is a ring with a scarab on it that says, basically, in the name of the king, this is the Pharaoh's name. So we have evidence of that throughout Egyptian studies, thousands of scarabs. I have a number of them in my collection. Maybe next time we'll bring some show and tell. But scarabs that we find from this time period, right time, right place, interestingly enough, here's one that I find fascinating. We actually find a number of scarabs from this time period. Now, if you look here on the left-hand side, this kind of scroll work, you see that? And on the right-hand side, this scroll work is very indicative of this exact time period what we refer to as the second intermediate period in Egyptian history. And uh, this scroll work is only really ever found during that time period when these so-called Hyksos people were there 
and living in this land and in power. Now this particular one gives us a very interesting name. If you look at it here, this is basically the word Jacob, okay? And then we see this word Har right here. Jacob, which is, how do you say Jacob in Hebrew? Jacob. Hmm. Here we have the exact name of an important person, okay? He has his own scarab. An important person. In fact, it says, it says uh, Sarah, which is basically meaning a, a child of God or a son of God. Not, not the son of God, but a son of God. Sarah, Jacob. And then this basically means given life. In other words, long life to you. An important ruler with his own scarab, and his name is Jacob. Now, the second word, Har, is a couple different words it could be. One word in Egyptian basically means mountain. Another word could be perhaps a in the kind of Semitic language would mean a house. But looking at this, it could mean the house or the mountain of Jacob. And if you had a, a people group and you were, you know, Jacob moving into the land, and you had all those people with you and under you, you're going to be a pretty important guy. And if you're going to be part of the house or the mountain, the foundation of Jacob, this could in fact be a representation of Jacob himself, one of his own scarabs, or one that was used with his authority, basically given to somebody because Jacob, as we know, was living in that land. He would have been in charge of all those people. You know, the Bible records that he brought 70 or 75 people with him into the land. Plus, they would have servants. They would have all kinds of other people. Jacob wasn't coming into the land just as a poor little, you know, you know, beggar. No, he was given the best of the land. He had people to work underneath him and all kinds of stuff. So he would be a person of power and authority, a mountain of a man, you might say. Interestingly enough, at the right time, the right place, the right people group, we have the name of a right person. So Jacob, this, again, we're not going to jump to conclusions 100%, but this very well could be an interesting thing. So, we move on quickly. What about Joseph? Where do we find him? Do we find him? Now, interestingly enough, the Bible records an Egyptian name in Genesis 41-45. The Egyptian name that was given by the Pharaoh to Joseph. When he elevated him to a position of power and authority, it tells us this in Genesis 41-45, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paneah, and gave him, gave him to wife, he gave him to wife yeah. Asenath, the daughter of the Potiphar, priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. So we see this name right here, Zaphnath Paneah, which is actually two different words. Uh, in the King James, it renders it as one. I think in the New King James, I think they separate it correctly. Um, in most of the translations, you're going to see it's separated because it's actually two different words. There's the first word, Zaphnath, that we see here, and Panea, two different words, okay? One is a title, and then one is probably the more common name that's being used. Now, when you look at this, this word we have in our Bibles, Zaphnath Panea, if you, go, if you understand how translation and even transliteration works, we are looking at an English word, okay, of a Hebrew word, of an earlier Hebrew word from a different translation or a different rendering of that from Paleo-Hebrew, from perhaps Proto-Sinaitic when it was written, of an Egyptian word. So we have multiple leaps that go to finally get this word that we have in our English language, Zapanathpanea. But let's go back a little bit further and see what it actually says in the Hebrew. So this um, is actually a recording of that. This is um, the word in the Hebrew. This is actually a scroll uh, about 300 years old that I have in my office. So I took a picture of this. In here is the word that we see in Hebrew. Of course, if you know Hebrew, it goes from right to left. And this section right here is the word for Zaphna. And this is the Panea part right here, okay? Uh, this is Potiphera um, 
and asinath. I highlighted that for another study. But looking here, this very first word I want to focus on is zapanath. The Hebrew letters that we see for that are what we see over here on the right. And this is, we, this is a sadi, hey, nun, tav. So sadi, hey, nun, tav basically says sapanat. is how you would kind of say it if you were saying in Hebrew. Sapanat, or in the Samaritan Pentateuch, they actually have a little yod symbol at the end of that, which kind of gives us a word sapnati. So zapnat or zapnati. Now, first little letter, that sadi, can you guys say sadi? kind of a weird little language. We don't really have that word or that, that sound in the English language typically. It's almost like if you were to say like a T and a Z, right? Sa. So not, not sa and not za, but sa. Imagine put a T and a Z. Sa. So you have sadi, he, nun, ta. So sa, and then a P, and an N, and then a T. Now if you know Hebrew, typically they don't have a lot of vowels added into there, so the vowels are kind of either injected or you kind of have to figure out which ones would kind of work in there depending on how you would pronounce it. But this zapanat or zapnati, you might even say, is an interesting word that we have in here. And so, of course, this is the Hebrew rendering of an earlier Egyptian word. So there's some, sometimes some changes even between Egyptian and Hebrew. And, of course, between Hebrew and how we would say it, like we say zapanat, but that's not exactly how it says in the Hebrew, but it's zapanat. In fact, I did a study with this, and I hold multiple people in Hebrew, uh, in Israel, and said, hey, can you say this word for me? And so I have the audio recordings of multiple people that I said, can you help me with this study, this project, and can you pronounce this word for me? And it's very different than what we typically say in our English, but zap, uh, zapnat or zapnati is kind of how you would say it in the Hebrew. So beginning to look at this, do we find this word anywhere in Egyptian? Well, interestingly enough, there's one single scarab that I know about it's in the Petrie Museum in London, part of the uh, University College of London there, you can find. And this one single scarab has a very interesting name on it. So here you can see that scarab there, it's part of the University College of London at the Petrie Museum. And we're going to talk a little bit about it. I'm going to rotate it so it'll be the right direction for us here, which would be kind of up and down here. So if you look at the hieroglyphs here, it's kind of hard to make out this part right here, but this is that same shepherd's staff. This is the same little sound for a kyurik. And here we go, the same hik, the heka kas. So basically the hiksos beginning word. And then we have down here, this three lines basically represents a people group, a multitude. So we have a ruler or an overseer, okay? And then down here we have the letters, I'm gonna show you up here, which correspond to what you see here. The hiksos part, the heka kasu. And then this right here says zapper. So sap, almost like supper, but sa. It's got that same sa, like a sadi. Sapper is what this is. This is another R, sometimes they double up letters. So sapper, and this is a letter for A, A, and this is a letter for N, and this is a T and an I. What we have here is a ruler or an overseer of the lands of the foreigners, and his name is Zapranati. Now, what did the word sound like that I just said before? Zapranat or Zapnati? And this in Egyptian is Sapernati. Now, looking at those, the transliteration between Egyptian and Hebrew is almost exactly the same. I believe that this is a scarab referring to Joseph himself by his royal title name. Now, we don't exactly know what that translation means, even in your Bible. It's going to say, you know, it could mean a few different things. And so even in Egyptian, 100%, we're not sure what that means. There's been some that, that have rendered that as being um, he who kind of speaks and hears for God. 
There's also been another version that says it's, it's a root word meaning the Lord of the North, which is kind of interesting. And so it could, in fact, be a reference to Joseph as a royal title given to him by the Pharaoh. So we continue to look at this. We have an interesting name here that we see, the same correlation between an Egyptian name, the only known scarab in there, sounding very similar, in fact, matching, we would say, between that and the Hebrew name that we see in the Bible. So looking at this, I believe that this time period, which we're not going to have a whole lot of time to continue talking about tonight, but this time period, the right time, the right people, the right place, all of this comes together, showing us that these Hyksos people that we've heard about, and that word Hyksos meaning overseer of the lands of the foreigners, which, who was Joseph? He was an overseer of the lands of the foreigners, because the foreign people came in and they were the ones living up there. The right time, the right people, the right place. It's interesting when you look at the similarities between these, okay? The Asiatic people, the Hyksos were Asiatics, the Hebrew were the Asiatics. They both settled peacefully into the land, right? They were brought in. They both lived in the delta in the same place. Interestingly enough, other studies about the Hyksos people, there's a gal named Charlotte Booth who wrote a great book about the Hyksos people. And in this book, she refers to the fact that their artistic style and the, the pottery and tools that they used had a lot of Mesopotamian influence. In other words, where the Tigers and Euphrates were, where Abraham originally came from. However, what she notes is they have this kind of Mesopotamian influence, but it seems to be in an, an archaic style, an old version, you know, like, you know, five years ago. You know, like, you know, your old shoes are like, oh, these are out of style now, right? They might be Nikes, but man, these are from the 90s. They're a little bit old. What we see here is that we have ancient stuff from Mesopotamia, but it's set back a few hundred years. Well, think about it. Abraham, who lives and grew up in Mesopotamia, moved, brought with him all these wares, all these tools, all this stuff, and then, of course, passed it on to his future generations, and they continued to carry on all those things. They would have brought that into Egypt. So the styles of old Mesopotamia, which weren't the, you know, the modern styles of the day coming out of Mesopotamia, now it also refers to them as shepherds. The Hyksos people were known as being shepherds. In fact, the Egyptians, when they were living down near... Um, in places in Upper Egypt, they refer to sending their livestock and their cattle and things to the north so that the Hyksos people would basically take care of them for a while. Because the Hyksos and the Egyptians were actually really good friends for a while. Until the Hyksos became very powerful. They became numerous and powerful. And Egyptian studies record that they became a powerful people. They were once friends and allies, then also became powerful and they became numerous. And then, at that point, they started to basically fight. And then the Egyptians rose up from the south and defeated the Hyksos people and basically wiped them out at that point, they say. Now, does that sound like a lot like what the Bible talks about? The Bible records the Hebrew people living there. They became rich, they became powerful, they became numerous. And the Bible tells us, you're going to read here coming up in, Gen in Exodus, that there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, didn't know anything about him. Now, that's because this guy who rises to power in the Hebrew, kind of refers to as a new, new kid on the block, you might say. A new Pharaoh rising up who was not living in and around that time, who didn't know Joseph, didn't honor him, and rose up and swept up and basically put them into slavery. What we see in the Bible recording about the Hebrew people is the exact same thing that the Egyptians record about these Hyksos people. They were once getting along, they were once allies, they once worked together. The Hyksos became numerous and powerful and started to kind of take over the land. The Egyptians got annoyed with that, and eventually that annoyance led to a great battle. Um, there's some great stories in the Egyptian studies about how that conversations went back and forth between the Egyptians and the Hyksos people at that point. 
Uh, we don't have time for that tonight, but we can talk later about that if you want. Anyhow, they became numerous and powerful. They rose up and they basically took them over. Very similar to what we see in the Bible. So when you look at this, I see amazing evidence. So the reason we want to talk about this tonight, the reason we've been talking about this is because I want you guys to have an understanding that archaeology, just like science in any other realm, does not in any way disprove or discredit the Bible. Now, there are some people who are archaeologists who don't believe the Bible, and so, of course, they're not going to have that foundation, right? They're going to start with a completely discredited mindset when it comes to the Bible. They're going to look for evidence elsewhere. They're not going to strive to look for the evidence. But the founding fathers of archaeology, in fact, if you read their stories, they many times say, hey, this is what the Bible says. And they find story and story after story. Nowadays, there's such a difference of opinion, even in science and in archaeology, on God's word. So people aren't looking at God's word, and many times there's a bias against God's word from the very foundation. So when you hear stories of there's no archaeological evidence anywhere in Egypt that the Hebrew people were ever there, I can tell you right now, not true at all. There may be an opinion from somebody that there was never any archaeological evidence, but I can firsthand tell you there are many biblical archaeologists that say, hey, here's evidence, here's evidence, and here's evidence. Now evidence, of course, needs to be weighed, it needs to be sorted, right? We need to have an understanding of it. Which is why today, even in biblical archaeology, there's exciting work being done. New discoveries. This whole thing about this new scarab, uh, this is still yet to be published work. It's unpublished. I'm currently working with the University of London back there to get information on this scarab, to get a higher resolution photo of it. We're working with another group that's actually going to be publishing stuff about this scarab and about some new important discoveries. But this whole idea of the, whole <clears throat> the Hyksos people and this timeline is really coming together. That's what they talk about in the Patterns of Evidence movie. That's what we're seeing come alive. It is a golden age of archaeology. When we look at it, God's word, once again, is shown to be true. Not that we need archaeology to prove God's word. We don't need science to prove God's word. God's word stands alone, doesn't it? We don't need all those things, but it helps us understand it. It helps us give answers to those who question or have questions. And what are we told to do? We are told to always have an answer give an answer to those who have, you know, who ask us for the reason, the hope, and the faith that lies within us. We are called to give an answer, to be ready to provide answers when asked, which is exciting. That's why we do tours of the Grand Canyon. That's why Adam and I run around the Grand Canyon and take people up there, not because we love the Grand Canyon, which we do, of course, you know, who doesn't? We love showing people God's amazing creation. We love showing people God's redemptive plan of salvation, that we believe the very rocks of this canyon cry out, and they speak as a testimony of that global flood in Noah's day, that God's word is true. And likewise, in other areas of science and archaeology and study, we can see time after time after time again, God's word is true, those events are true, and to me personally, it's exciting. You can probably tell it because I'm talking a whole lot tonight, right? But it's exciting, and I love being able to study this, and I know this is kind of a, a transition from Genesis into Exodus, but I wanted you guys to kind of have an understanding of where the people are at where we might even see these, these Hebrew people in this timeline. So when you watch a film, when you hear a, a radio you know, program, when you read a blog, and they say there's no evidence that the Hebrew people were ever in Egypt, I can tell you right now firsthand, I've done a lot of study in this, not true. There absolutely is evidence, I believe. And hopefully next time we'll be talking more about the Exodus in that time and perhaps some of those events that are there too. We're going to dive into the timeline of Moses, maybe even help identify uh, perhaps who the Pharaoh might have been during that time, the evidence that we see. So my passion, like I said, is studying Egyptian history because the more I study Egyptian history, again, the more it lines up with what the Bible talks about. So again, we'll kind of talk about it from an Egyptian perspective, where we see in the history there where the, the sands of time you know, are 
being uncovered to reveal God's word true time and time again. So, pretty cool. All right. We have time for questions? Yeah. All right. Yes. Yeah. Right. There's no bones in there. Yeah, no, no body. There's no coffin in there. Very interesting point. So they do they find like these 12 different tombs. Um, and the, the biggest one, the main one that they think is perhaps Joseph, has no body. And so, yeah, I should have tied that in because thank you for that because I just read that, right? So looking at that, we see that they took the body of Joseph. You're going to read that in the Exodus. They actually, when they were getting ready to leave, they said, oh, hey, we've got to go get, you know, Grandpa Joe. And so they ran up there and grabbed Joseph, and they took Joseph's bones with them from Egypt when they did the Exodus, when they left. Absolutely. It's an empty tomb, right? There are multiple granaries around there, yeah. Are you talking about Saqqara? Yeah. So Saqqara, a little bit further south, is right by modern-day Memphis. It's on the opposite side of where Memphis used to be. But Saqqara was originally one of the very first, in fact, probably the first pyramid ever built on Earth. It's referred to as the Step Pyramid. It has all these kind of steps to it. Now, that goes back way before the people of Israel were ever there. So the Step Pyramid initially was there, but evidence shows us that there was a much bigger complex that was built kind of around that at a later date, perhaps, and this complex basically is a bunch of granaries. In other words, storage of grain. And there were places where you would walk through. There was a massive wall built around this entire complex with only one entrance in and out. And you could go through this entrance, and there's all these booths on the side, right? So there's like booths, and it looks like they're just the right size. You'd have a little table set up. So no matter what language you spoke, no matter what form of currency you showed up with, you could say, all right, I'm coming in with you know, all this gold or this silver, whatever it is and you could exchange that for basically your ticket stubs. Here's how many bushels of grain you could have. And then you walk through that colonnade into the open courtyard, and in there you would actually be able to get your grain and then you could take your animals and take it on out of there. Now there's some really great interesting stuff with that. There's actually grain that they found in the bottom of these massive pits that are just on the south side of a Saqqara, the south side of the Step Pyramid. They still have grain in there. And this grain, you go down into these pits and there's a huge underground labyrinth a network is if you fill a pit, the grain would continue to fill, you know, from multiple pits would kind of fill a main central gathering place. So it would be perfect for dumping all the grain in the top, almost like a modern day grain elevator, right? You dump it in the grain bin, up in the top, and then you siphon it out from the bottom. And so, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I have yet to get over there to Saqqara to see that, but that would be exciting to really... Yeah, they talk about that too. So, again, probably, or perhaps I should say, um, the grain areas there around Saqqara were built during the time of Joseph. Uh, there was a lot of construction taking place during that time period, during what we call the 12th dynasty. Um, and so perhaps this would have been a location that was kind of added to or built upon later on, because that step pyramid would be a pretty good landmark. So anybody coming into Egypt looking for grain, oh yeah, go to the step pyramid. And you could see it from miles and miles away, right? And so it would be a great place for anybody traveling to buy grain like Joseph or Joseph's brothers did uh, coming into there. That's great. I love it. Thanks for having us. Questions, anybody? Yeah. 